Would you open your Bibles with me to John chapter 15? John chapter 15. Today there are millions of Christians in India, although they still only make up about 2% of their population. Only 2% of their massive population. And for that 2% of Christians there in India, it's not without persecution. About a year ago, Al Jazeera, the news source, they wrote a a column about the state of affairs in India at that time. It was only a year ago. And it described how RSS, RSS, I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce what it stands for, I can't. Um, But it's known as RSS, and it's a Hindu fundamentalist organization there in India. And they want to bring peace. And their emphasis is on preserving Hinduism in India. And in this column, they reported how the leader of this organization gave a speech. And in this speech, it was supplemented with a call to violent attacks on Christians and churches in different parts of India. And with mobs making open calls to behead them and stop the conversions of Hindus. This is open. They were attacking churches with with groups and accusing them of Hindu conversions. That because they're converting Hindus to Christianity, they're attacking them. They're assaulting people, sexually assaulting the women. In fact, one victim reported, they dragged me by my neck to the ground, to the ground floor while raining blows on my face and back. I became unconscious after I was hit with a rod on my head. The police are not even responding quickly to the reports. That even when they get a call, they don't show up, if at all, and if they do show up, they show up when it's too late. In the same story, that police even filed a report against the pastor's family, accusing him of forced conversions, accusing him of promoting religious disharmony, of criminal conspiracy, and even accusing this pastor of robbery. There was one Hindu organization, they held a rally, and it was a, a stop religious conversions rally. And in this rally, they were addressing, the leader was addressing the people, and he urged them to arm themselves, arm yourselves, people, with axes to teach Christians indulging in conversions a lesson. More than 300 attacks on Christians took place. It's only within the first nine months of last year. 300 attacks. Now it's just what they know of. It's a serious, serious condition there, a serious state of persecution. When I was looking into this even further, I noticed that RSS, the same Hindu fundamentalist, fundamentalist organization, has a Muslim wing. They have a Muslim wing where within this organization, they have a, a right for Muslims to come and join RSS and be a part of this propaganda. And it just stood out to me because they would allow a Muslim wing, but I didn't find a Christian wing. And even more, they're not even persecuting other religions that I could see. That they're mainly it's focused on Christians. That they're not opposing or persecuting Muslims. But yet, it's focused upon Christ. And in fact, on their website, I even went to their website, and you can too if you're interested. It says, if you look at their beliefs... And it says that any religion, anybody can join RSS, even Muslims and even Christians, it says, as long as you agree with the above beliefs. That, of course, persecution is not always just because you say you're a Christian. That that's not always going to be the reason of persecution. 
But how that calling impacts your life is oftentimes where that persecution is going to come from. That to call yourself a Christ follower, and many times in the world's ears, means nothing until that calling has an impact on what you view and what you say yes and no to, your perceptions, what you think is okay, what you think is not okay. In other words, if that calling changes how you view anything around you outside of your own personal beliefs, then it becomes an issue. But that's really going to be, I think, the turn of where persecution even turns for, even for American Christianity. That's not just going to be, you can call yourself a Christian. Like the world's not angry with many liberal Christian denominations. They're angry with Christians who speak against the deeds and the sins within the world because it's personal. But they don't realize what, what we must realize is that any call to Christianity, it must turn your, your life upside down. That when you come to Christ, You don't come to Christ on your terms. You come to Christ on his terms. And any disciple of Christ must learn and will learn that to follow him is costly. You've realized that if you claim Christ, it may cost you friendships, relationships, family members, neighbors, jobs. It may cost you everything. It may not be as extreme. But hear this, if scripture is true, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3, 21. So in our present context where we live, the persecution that we face, it may not be as physically hostile as it is in other countries yet. But you may be called narrow-minded. You may be looked at as fundamental a conservative extremist, intolerant. You may be called a hate speech advocate. You may not be physically abused yet, but how the world treats you and what they call you and how you're ostracized and how you're looked down upon, it will come. Why is that? It's because the world hates the light. The world hates the light. So no matter how intense the opposition or persecution comes, the opposition awaits the believer. Without a doubt, there are these smaller forms, greater forms. Opposition will come for God's people. And I hope you realize that. I think we know that now. But we have to realize that when it comes, we shouldn't be surprised by it. In our passage in John chapter 15, we're looking at verses 18 through 25. And what Jesus already has done so far in this chapter is he he explained to the branches, in other words, the branches, those who are abiding in him, he explained some relationships that we should have as branches in Christ. The first relationship, if you're a branch, if you're in Christ, one relationship is the relationship you have with the vine, with Christ. And what is that relationship to look like? You are to abide in him. That if you're a branch, he describes that relationship is you abide in him. You let his word take residence and dwell within you richly. You just don't read it. You just don't know it. But his word takes residence in our soul. We abide in him by letting his word abide in us and he in us. And we bear much fruit. And in the passage we looked at last week, verses 12 through 17, he looked at the branch's relationship, not only to the vine, but the branch's relationship to one another. How are we now to relate to one another? In the church body, we relate to one another how? In love. Love one another. 
that we abide in Christ. And because we're abiding in Christ now, we ought to love one another. This is sacrificial love to do good for one another. That that is our relationship with one another. But now in our passage this morning, verses 18 through 25, he's talking about the branch's relationship with the world. How is the world going to treat us? What is our relationship with the world going to look like? And unfortunately here, he gives them a heads up that that relationship is going to be filled with and marked with persecution, opposition. But let's look at our passage before we dive deeper into it. Verses 18, starting at verse 18 through 25. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without cost without cause. There's without a doubt here, the Lord prepares his disciples that you will have hatred coming at you from the world, that they will hate you. But this is not only just to scare them, that is not his intent here in this upper room discourse. He's preparing his disciples for his departure. And what will come after his departure is many truths that they need to cling in order to be fruitful. And so really here, within the context here, yes, you will be hated amongst the world. That will be marked, your, your marked relationship. They will hate you. But yet, in this passage, there are four encouragements, four encouragements for us to remember in a hateful world. In this rich passage here, he gives us four encourage, encouragements to remember in a hateful world so that you may live boldly for Christ. I think that's what he wants to bring home for them. That yes, there will be a reality of hatred and persecution and opposition that people will not like you, but yet there are four encouragements here to remember in a hateful world so that you may live boldly for Christ. And so though it does look daunting, I mean, we think about the reality of persecution of India and other, many other countries, we just didn't have time to go through. What's important here is that we need to be centered on truth so that we can endure when your time comes. Parbiari has come. So that whenever that time comes of persecution, though it looks daunting, we need to be centered. Let's look at the first encouragement that he gives them. The first encouragement is found in verses 18 and 20. But basically the encouragement here is that you're in good company. You're in good company. What you think about that? That you can't expect to be hated by the world. Expect it. Look how he begins in verse 18. If the world hates you, that if is not just, you know, Maybe some of you will. Maybe some of you won't experience it. No, he says, if the world hates you, what does it say after that? You know that it has hated me before it has hated you. He's already expecting, in other words, that since, you know, the world is going to hate you, like, don't expect or don't don't wonder, like, roll the dice. Is that going to be me? In other words, this if is not a possibility. He says the world has already hated me before it hated you. And when he says here that it's already hated me, the tense he uses here 
for technical purposes, but it's important, but it uses the perfect tense, which he uses again later in this verse, in this passage we'll look at. It uses the perfect tense to say, it's already hated me. And with this tense here, he basically says that they saw him, and what was the response? They hated him, and that hatred, not only was this a definite response of hate, hatred, but it continued on all throughout his ministry, even into that point, all the way to the point of the cross. It was an ongoing response of hatred toward him. So he tells his disciples, if the world hates you, hey, it's hated me from the beginning. It's going to hate me till my death and resurrection. It's going to always hate me. It's going to be marked with hatred. He says this to indicate the world's fixed disposition against him, that they will hate him. But he reminds his disciples, you're in good company because it hated me from the beginning. And it's going to hate you. Your Lord was hated by the same world, in other words. So he tells them, because that's true, that if it does come to you, whenever it does come in that time, that don't be surprised because look how they receive me. If they nailed me to a cross without cause, what do you think they're going to do to you? I was sinless. What about you? Don't be surprised. You're in good company. He even tells them in verse 20 that remember the word that I said to you, that he's reminding them of truth, that a slave is not greater than his master. Now let's ask the question here. He says, remember the word that I spoke to you. What word is he speaking about that he spoke to them? I think it's pretty clear that he's speaking in just a couple of chapters before in chapter 13. He says in verse 16, this is right after he, he was washing the disciples' feet. And he's just washing their feet. He's basically tell them, do unto others as I'm doing to you. Verse 16 says, truly, truly, I say to you of chapter 13, a slave is not greater than his master nor is the one who sent greater than the one who sent him. Having washed his disciples' feet, Jesus here is saying, you're not greater than me. And do you see what I just did for you? One of the most humbling acts of service one could do in that culture. I washed your feet. That if you're a disciple of Christ, how dare we say that we're above sacrificial service for the sake of others? Because he himself modeled that that he washed their feet. And he says, a slave is not greater than his master. In other words, you're not greater than me. If I can wash your feet, you can wash your brother and sister's feet. That you can love and serve sacrificially in the same way that I'm demonstrating to you. And now in our chapter, in chapter 15, he takes that to remind them that in the same way they're called to follow him in humble servitude, they're also called to follow him in persecution. That a slave is not above his master. Remember the word I said to you. You're not greater than me. You're not above me. That you need to follow me even in being persecuted. Follow me in being opposed. First Peter chapter 4 verse 12 reminds us that, beloved, you know, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Don't be surprised at this fire ordeal of persecution. Don't be surprised when you're under fire because of who you're claiming. As if something strange were happening to you. Expect it. He's preparing them. This will come. When you came, became a follower of Christ, beloved, do you realize that when you came to Christ, when he drew you to himself, that you signed up for persecution? That when you signed on the dotted line, did you realize you gave your all? That you gave up your right for comfort, for likability, 
for prestige and honor amongst the world. That you signed up for persecution. In Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah is called to ministry, the, the great passage that people we often refer to when, when he says that vision of the Lord in the temple, and he sees this great vision of God sitting on the throne. And then God comes to him, an angel comes to him and cleanses him and makes him useful for service. And you remember what God says to, to Isaiah at that time, after he cleanses him, prepares him for service. Chapter 6, verse 8 says, Then the Lord, the, the voice of the Lord was saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? In other words, who's going to go now? Who's going to proclaim my word? And, and Isaiah is standing there in the midst of God. And what does Isaiah say? Here I am, Lord. Send me. I'm here. You need someone to go? Lord, Lord, send me. It's the right response. The Lord's calling, you go. But now after he says, here I am, send me. God says, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Like, okay, I, I said I was going to go, and then now you're saying, go, and look how you're going to be hated by these very people you're going to go to. He, he bids them, who's going to go? I will go. But no, no, no. Lord, you could have told me what I was signing up for beforehand. <laughs> okay, I, you said you're going to, so I thought you were going to say, now we can rebuild this kingdom now and it's going to be success in here from here on out. You know, that's what I thought what I was heading toward. But no, no, no. When God said, who's going to go? You say you go, but do not ask questions about what's going to be ahead of you. You go where I go and don't worry about what happens. That's the call of discipleship, that when you come to Christ in his glory, you don't come on your terms, but you realize you come in faithful servants, adherence to his will, and whatever comes, come what may. And so he says, you are in good company. But also here, there's a glimmer of hope he still gives in this, because though he says, you're not above, the servant's not above his master, he says at the end of verse 20, that if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you, which we understand. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. There's some hope in that. Because if they persecuted him, which they did, he's saying, you also will be persecuted. But he also says, if they kept my word, they will keep yours too. That yes, there will be some who pick up stones to attack you. There will be some who seek to kill you, who conspire against you, who who speak against you, who want to defame you, who want to bring you down. But there will also be people who will hear the message that you are proclaiming, and they will keep your word because you're speaking the word of Christ. That yes, they will persecute you, but just like in Christ's day, there were those who persecuted him, but there were those who heard his message and flocked to him and followed him. And in the same way, he's giving hope to his disciples that it's not just a complete Jeremiah ministry where you're going to get opposition after opposition that no one will hear. But hear this, you will get people who will hear your word and they will follow it and they will imitate you as you imitate Christ. That there is hope in this that he gives to them. Yes, you will be persecuted, but yes, they will also keep your word. So when I say you're in good company, do we believe that? Do we believe that we are in good company when you suffer for the name of Christ? 
Have you considered that it is an honor? It is an honor to suffer for Christ. Have you thought about that? That if you suffer for Christ's glory, for his name, it is an honor. In other words, we can say, you do not deserve that honor. But it is a great honor and a great privilege to suffer for the sake of Christ. We shouldn't have to twist and convince the church how good it is to suffer for Christ's name in that sense. Because it truly is an honor. First Peter chapter 4 He's speaking to the church there, the Jews dispersed, and they're in the midst of, of suffering and opposition as well from the world. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, he gives hope to this hurting church, the hurting God's people. And he says to them, but verse 13 of chapter 4, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, what do they do to that? To the degree that you're sharing in the sufferings of Christ, he says, keep on rejoicing. Keep on rejoicing. Keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. That even though you may receive suffering and opposition, he says, keep on rejoicing because you may also receive glory at his revelation. It is a privilege to bear the name of Christ, to share in his suffering so that you may also share in his victory when he makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. Think about it. How can the early disciples, the apostles there of the early church in Acts chapter 5, when they're just getting pounded by the world, they're getting opposition from every end, they're just beating them down, literally. And yet in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, they flogged the disciples. And do you remember how they responded there in Acts chapter 5, verse 41? That after they flogged, they left rejoicing, for they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. But they were beat physically. And how did they walk away from that beating? They walked away rejoicing that the Lord counted them worthy to suffer for his name. If you thought about that, that it would be a privilege to suffer for his name. You're in good company. Furthermore, a second encouragement that we, we see here is not only you're in good company, but you're a kingdom citizen. You're a kingdom citizen. Look at verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Be reminded that yes, you will be hated, but the hate you received could be an indication of your citizenship. If you receive hatred from the world, that's an indication you a citizen not of this world. Philippians 3 verse 20 reminds us that our citizenship is where? It's in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Earlier in that book, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 28, he says, now in no way, don't be alarmed by your opponents. Don't be surprised that there are people opposing you. Why? It's a sign of destruction for them, but salvation for you too. That opposition from enemies is a sign of destruction for them, but salvation for you. It's a reminder here that you have a home that is not found in this worldly prestige, this worldly kingdom that you must be reminded, that he reminds them here that if you were of this world, they would love you. 
that the reason why you're not getting love from the world is because you're not of this world. It's interesting here that the word he uses for love here in this passage in verse 19, if the world, if you were of the world, the world would love you. It's not this agape love he's been talking about, about this agape love of what we should have for one another. But he uses here, this is the phileo, this, this idea of just natural affection for one another. This is not this, this godly sacrificial love, but he says here, if you were of this world, this world, then they would have that phileo, that natural affection for you. If you looked like them, if you talked like them, if your priorities were like theirs, if you believed what they believed, if you hailed to their ideology, then of course they would naturally love you. They would naturally take you in. Why? Because you look like them. You talk like them. You affirm them. So he says they would embrace you. They will embrace you. But keep in mind, this worldly love, this natural affection and natural passion that comes from the world, it is not an unconditional love. In fact, the world's love is a love that has conditions and borders. So as long as you stay within the borders and the conditions of this ideology, this, this, this world that we have, this system of belief, as long as you stay within here, then you can have membership here. But what happens now is that allegiance to Christ draws you away from this kingdom and it sets you apart. And just like it did for Christ, it not only sets you apart, but it forces you and compels you to expose the deeds of darkness. So now they hate you just like they hated your Lord. So he says, if you were like them, of course they would love you. I mean, if they love everything about you, then that makes sense. You were of them. But he says, you were not. And that's why they don't love you. It's like this, this idea of, of mafia and gangs. It's used as like the most intimate bond you can have. This is a brotherhood, a familyhood. Like you never go against a family, right? It's my best Italian accent you're going to get. But like you see this idea that mafias and, and, and gangs, right? They do profess. And they, that's why it's so appealing to people without a, a good family, without good brotherhood there. It's because it professes to have this link, this love with one another, that I got your back. But what happens if you go against the family? What happens if you speak against the family? What happens if you start making friends with other gangs, other families? You step out the conditions and the borders that we have set, and you're out. So as long as you look like them, you're fine. But this love is not an abiding love. It's not an unconditional love. It is not this godly love in that sense. If the world did love you, that may be a sign that you are of the world. I'm not saying here that you shouldn't strike to be liked in that sense, that you should be kind, like Brother Don reminded us, that if it's, it's all possible, be at peace with everyone. But if the world loves everything about you because you ascribe to their identity, then that is a problem. That when we want to seek to be like the world, to fit in, And that may be indication, maybe I am of the world. Am I of heavenly citizenship? And keep in mind that you only feel the loss of the world if you have treasure there. Because he's implying here that the world is not going to love you because you're not of it. But that only bothers the believer if we have treasure buried in the world. If I lose my citizenship, if I lose prestige and acceptance with the world, so be it. Why? Because my treasure is not here. My treasures is not in the affirmation of the world. It's not in things of the world. It's not in the people of the world. It doesn't mean I don't seek to love them, 
but my hope and my treasure is not there. So if I lose it, if now I'm labeled as a fundamentalist, if I'm now labeled as hate, if I'm now labeled however they want, if they want to reject me, that is fine. So be it. It is promised I'm in good company, but I have to be reminded my treasure is not here. Believer, your treasure, our treasure is in heavenly places. And we await the Lord who will return, who will restore this wicked place, this wicked world. We await him that our treasure is there. If you're going to be fired from your company and you knew that you're heading to that interview, to that, that meeting, knowing that you're going to be terminated. But if you had a job offer from a Fortune 500 company in your pocket, how would that impact how you sat through that interview, through that meeting? How would that impact you knowing that they're basically going to fire you? But I got a job offer from a Fortune 500 company in my pocket. You can fire me. You can cancel me. You can throw me out. I don't care. I got a salary that's going to triple what you're paying me here, plus benefits, plus stock options, right? Like, I don't care. Like, you can't throw me out. You can reject me. I don't care. Why? My hope is not here. I have something greater, something better. And to suffer, it's all for not. I don't care. I know what's waiting for me. And he brings it home. He says that he chose them in verse 19. This is the reason I chose you out of the world. And he places the emphasis there on I chose you, that I chose you out of this world. And because I chose you out, you are not of this world. And that's why the world hates you. The only way they'll love you is if you look like them, if you talk like them, if you think like them, if you process like them. It's natural. John chapter 3 verse 20 says that darkness hates the light, as we said. Because it exposes their deeds, and their deeds are sinful. So they will hate it. They won't accept it. But we have to be reminded, as the Lord reminds his disciples, I chose you out of this world. So if you lose prestige and honor and acceptance here with this world, you've been chosen for a greater kingdom. Furthermore, it gives a third encouragement. Not only are you in good company, you're a kingdom citizen, but he reminds him that your persecution is not personal. Your persecution is not personal. Now, yes, it may be directed at you personally, but it is not personal. They hate your message because they hate your master. It's not personal. Look at verse 21. But all these things they will do to you, why? For my name's sake. They will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. That why are they doing this? For my name's sake. That's because this, this hate here, that they hate him, they hate them. Why? Because of the message. They hate the one who sent them. They hate the father. They hate the son. They hate his followers. But we must remember here that this idea, this hatred here that he's speaking of here, it's not just an emotional hatred. That yes, it's true that's involved in it, but this hatred here has this idea of rejection. That not only, yes, of course, they, they, they can't stand you, they detest you, but they reject you and they rejected him. So you will be written off, you will be scolded, you will be scoffed at, you will be humiliated, you will be thrown aside. But here is they're rejecting you because they hate the message. They reject the message and so they reject the messenger. And by the way, you think about it, no one really verbalizes. Rarely do people verbalize, I hate Jesus. 
Like no, no one really says that. But how do we know they hate Jesus? Because they reject his words. They reject what he says. They love the darkness. And his words expose them, and so they hate him. So they may not verbalize it. They may not verbalize the reason why they hate Christians, but it's manifested because they hate what we stand for. We, we stand for truth and righteousness and true justice. We stand for a God who will not tolerate that. And so if that's the case, they will reject you just like they rejected him. And so he's reminding them that, yes, they hate me. They reject me. And yes, they will hate you because they will reject you. I mean, you can't help but feel sorry for a prisoner of war who's caught in the midst of, of a battle. I mean, this prisoner of war, I mean, the country doesn't know nothing about maybe how, how good of a father he could have been, a good citizen. They, they don't care nothing about his life, about his ethics, about how well he performed. They don't care nothing about that. But why do they capture him and torture him and imprison him? Because of his uniform, because of the country he's representing. It's not personal. They hate everything this soldier stands for. And they want to spite the nation. They don't like, it's not they don't like you personally per se, but they don't like what you represent. So Jesus makes it clear that if they hated him, he says, it's because they do not know the one who sent me. And they hate even not only him, they hate his father. He begins to say, or continues to say in verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. But look how he follows it up. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they both have seen and hated me and my father as well. That here they hate him, they hate his father, they hate all of it because of what it stands for. And they reject it wholeheartedly. And he says, if they had not come, if they had not done the works, if they had not taught, they would not have any sin. He's not speaking here, if, if he didn't come, they would be sinless in that sense. Because think about it, he's already enacted judgment. God has already enacted judgment multiple times in the world before Christ's coming. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah. Think of all the, the pagan nations around Israel before they went to the land. You think of time and time again, John the Baptist speaking judgment before Christ came. He's not saying here, if I didn't come and teach, if I didn't come and do works, they'd be sinless. But he's speaking here the fact that the specific sin of willfully rejecting him in spite of the full face of his revelation. That because they rejected me, knowing all that I taught, seeing all that I've done, they're indicted because of that specific sin of rejecting me. That they had heard him, they saw him, they saw what he did with his works, which he says here, which no one else did. In order to mark the validity of what he's teaching here. These works which no one else did, no one can account for, and yet they still hated him. Why? Because they hated him and they hated his father. And again, which I referenced earlier, he uses the perfect tense in verse 24. It says that they have seen me and they hated me. In other words, to indicate that they, have, they saw his works, they saw it all, and yet they, they saw it. And they hated him. They saw once, hated him once, and continued to hate him, even as it continued throughout his ministry. It was an ongoing response. They hated him all the way until the end. 
In other words, he's highlighting the fact that the hard hardness of their hearts, that their hearts were hardened time and time again, even though they heard God speak, even though they saw God move among them. And yet what was the response? They hated it. And so he's telling his disciples, they hated me, my father. They're going to hate you. It's not personal. But this is what sinful man does when they see the truth. There's a story here of of a, a tribal chief in another country who went to a missionary camp. And this tribal chief went to the missionary camp and she looked and she saw a a, a glass carved in the the middle of a tree. And she looked and saw her reflection and she got startled. And she said, who is this? What is this ugly creature doing there in that tree? What is that? And the missionary said, "It's, it's a mirror, it's your reflection. And this tribal chief begged this missionary to buy that, that, that glass, to buy that mirror from them. And she's like, no, I, I need this mirror. But she, she was incessant. She said, no, I must buy this. I'll, I'll give you whatever you want. And so finally the, the missionary gave it to her and sold it to her. And she took the, the mirror. She looked at it and she threw it on the ground and shattered it to pieces. And she says, there, now I'll never make that face again. I'll never have it looking at me like that again. That's what really sinful man does. That when you see your reflection in the righteousness of God, when you see the holiness of God, what it does to a hardened heart is it makes it hate it even more. So when he sees Christians speaking truth, standing for truth, speaking the truth of the gospel, that the glorious hope of grace, of salvation in Christ that can cleanse you no matter how filthy you are as a sinner, when the world sees that hardened in their sin, they're going to hate it even more. They'll dig their hands deeper into the ground and say, I hate this message and I hate you too. That's what sinful man does to it. So even though they'll be persecuted, even though we'll be persecuted, We have to realize now, we must let our persecution be for the right reason. We must let our persecution be for the right reason. Don't let people hate you and oppose you just because you're a jerk. (laughs) Like, that shouldn't be the reason why. I'm not saying you don't speak the truth, but speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. Let your speech be seasoned with grace as though with salt. Be bold. Don't be compromising. But you can still speak truth. Well, speaking in love, think about how a, a poor politician can just destroy a good policy. Like a bad politician can destroy a good platform. Think how many times like a candidate just ruined the whole campaign because he just couldn't behave himself well throughout the campaign. And they went after his character. They went after his speech. They went after his life and ruined a perfectly good platform or policy because of that bad candidate. In the same way, we don't want to just, people hate us for the wrong reason. We sh- they should hate us because of the truth that we're speaking. Not because we're a bad advocate of it. 1 Peter 4.14 says that make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome, medis- troublesome meddler. That the purpose of the persecution is because of who you represent. So we want to represent him well. That that should be our desire. And so because that's true, just like the disciples, we can too endure persecution with joy. With joy. As I referenced earlier in Acts 4 and 5, the disciples, they were persecuted time and time again on account of his name. And they did so with joy. 
And what's interesting there is in Acts chapter 4 and verse 5, it's, it's detailing just much opposition that the disciples and the apostles had in the early church, just proclaiming the gospel, simply proclaiming the gospel. And there in the middle of that, chapters 4 and 5, you see the whole account in chapter 4 of the saints. Like, how did the saints behave in the midst of that opposition? That yes, the church was receiving much heat from the world, but in the middle of that opposition, you see here the church body loving one another, giving of their own resources for the betterment of others, serving those within the church body. It's really emphasizing and highlighting the importance here that yes, you will have hatred, but look how sweet the communion is of the body of believers. That how refreshing it should be for God's people to come together and not just come together in unity, but that unity is expressed in true, genuine, sacrificial love for one another that can withstand the hatred outside the walls. So even though we will be hated and brought down and heated by the world, what is a comforting truth to God's people is not only God and his word, but the comforting truth that we have one another through this. And I think that's important for us to realize because yes, he's saying you will be persecuted just like I was, but I think there's a message here in this context of this entire chapter is that you abide in me, but listen, beloved, love one another. That that love should be so sweet because outside those walls, you do not receive it like you receive it here. And that's why the church can endure this kind of opposition. That if we love one another, we don't need the world's approval. I don't need the world to love me. The disciples, we are to be known by our love. The world's going to be known by its hatred. We've got to go to this fourth encouragement. That your persecution is not pointless. It's not not only personal, but now your persecution is not pointless. Verse 25. But they have done this. They've hated you, persecuted you. Why? To fulfill the word that is written in their law, they hated me without cause. He points out here now, to fulfill the word that's written in their law. Look how he phrases that. That this is the word of God, obviously speaking of still. But he says that they hated me without cause. There's discussion here, but he's likely quoting either Psalm 35 verse 19 or Psalm 69 verse 4. Both of those speak, of, of, they're both David speaking and they're in the Psalms. And what David is speaking of in those Psalms is he's, he's highlighting the fact that there's real reality of opposition David has from the world. And in chapter 35, excuse me, 35 verse 19, right before it, he says, verse 17, Lord, how long will you look on that David is grieving here over the opposition of his opponent, or opponents? Rescue my soul from their ravages, my only life from their loins, from the lions. I will give you thanks in the great congregation. I will praise you among a mighty throng. Do not let those who are wrongfully my enemies rejoice over me, he says. Nor let those who hate me without cause wink maliciously. For they do not speak peace, but they devise deceitful words against those who are quiet in the land. They open their mouth wide against me. They said, aha, aha, eyes have seen it. That David here in this chapter and also in chapter 69, he is detailing just the hurt that he had just because people are coming against him without cause, that they're attacking him. And David is grieving before God. Lord, do not let your enemies prevail over me. That it's not just that they're coming at me. And Jesus now, in quoting this, his point is, is if David, a mere man, could be so hated by his enemies, how much more the son of God? That if David could say they hated me without cause, how much more could David's God say that? 
that his words and his works vindicated him, he says, but they still rejected him without cause. That as Pilate says, I have found no fault in this man, but yet they still say, crucify him, crucify him, Pilate. Isaiah 53 verse 9 reminds us he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. That the Lord went to the cross without cause. And the same way, persecution for the church, for the Christian, is not pointless. That when God sovereignly ordains persecution to his people, it is not without cause. It is not without purpose. That it does serve a purpose. That when we endure persecution, that when it comes our way, it's not a matter of if, that God uses that still to his glory. And if you think about it, if they were not persuaded by the teachings of Jesus himself and by his own works, by his words, don't be surprised when they're unmoved by our teachings, by our word. It's God's work and it's not pointless. That persecution, opposition, hatred, whatever you want to call it, when it's done for the sake of Christ, when it's because of his name, because of his teachings, when it's done for him, it is an instrument to glorify God. That even in persecution, it is to glorify God. Because how? Because God is glorified not only in the salvation of his saints, but God is still glorified in the judgment of sinners. That we don't know what judgment will look like for the white throne judgment when God will bring every unbeliever before him and he will bring account of their deeds done in wickedness and he will judge them eternally. We don't know exactly all that's going to happen at that great white throne judgment. Is he going to bring into remembrance the faithful words of his believers that spoke the gospel to them and they heard it and they had the opportunity to repent and yet they still said that's garbage. Is he going to bring to remembrance the time and time, in fact, that they had brushings with other believers who were faithful and speaking the good gospel of grace to them and they still despised it? Is he going to bring to remembrance the times that they had where they heard the gospel preached and they spat in the face of the person who spoke it? We don't know all what's going to happen here, but we do know God is judge and he is going to judge the sinner and he's going to be glorified in that judgment. So even though you face that persecution that he promises for his church, that he promises for his believer, the hope that we have now is God will either glorify himself in either the saving of that sinner by the message that you're proclaiming or by his glory when he judged them forever. We don't know how it's going to look. But we know the rejection of their truth, if they continue to reject it, that it's going to amount to deeper depths of judgment for them. That the more they hear and see of the light, and the more they scorn it, the more they hate it, the amount of judgment that's built upon them time and time again. So be faithful in that, that we're faithful to continue bringing the good gospel of grace to a dying world. That we continue to proclaim that yes, The world, yes, the world is hopeless. That yes, you are born in sin. That yes, God will bring to account every deed if you do not bow the knee to Christ. Yes, we will proclaim that he will wash you clean of all iniquity. Yes, we will proclaim that there is Christ who died and went to the cross. Yes, we will proclaim that he bore the wrath of God. And yes, we will proclaim that he was buried. And yes, we will proclaim that he was raised on the third day. 
that he walked the earth for 40 days, that he was ascended up to heaven and back into a cloud, that he's sitting right now at the right hand of the Father, and he is coming back again to judge the world of sin and righteousness. Yes, we will proclaim that day after day after day, and by God's grace, he will save many souls, and by God's judgment, he will continue to damn souls who refuse that message. We have no responsibility with what happens with the message of our faithfulness, but we trust the process that God will do what is good, that he will draw many, many dying souls to himself. He will bring back to life dead souls, and he will judge, rightfully so, those who reject that message, even though they've seen it time and time again. So how do we avoid persecution? Let's talk about that. How do we avoid persecution? One way is, You love the comfort of your present life. If you love the present comfort of your life, the ease of your life, how much you're embraced by those around you, how much your neighbors love you, how much they say, oh, he really is about love because he lets me live my life however I want to live it. If you love the present comforts of your life, you can avoid persecution. If you seek the affection and approval of people, you'll avoid persecution. If you want to be liked, if you want to be popular, if you want to be well-esteemed, if you seek that affection, you'll avoid persecution. If you want to be welcoming of other views on man, sexuality, righteousness, salvation, if you just want to be welcoming of all different variety of views, you'll avoid persecution. If you want to have a good and easy life, your best life now, you'll avoid persecution. But look here, beloved, that is a slap in the face of the Savior who died and rose again. This sermon is not to prepare you for the future. I hope you don't hear this and say, okay, when this time comes, I think I'm ready now. I got four encouragements. I'm ready for this. This is for now. This is for now. That we shouldn't say, in a sense, that w- this is going to be in the future, so when this comes, I think I'm prepared and equipped. But we have to realize that we must be ready for now. And it is the reality for now, because there are many people in our lives who do not know this Lord, and we must be faithful to this message. But I want to answer the question, how should we rightfully respond and prepare for the now? Philippians chapter 1 In verse 28, I mentioned earlier, don't be alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign for destruction for them, but for salvation for you, and that too from God. He says in verse 29, Paul says to the Philippians, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. In other words, believer, It has been gifted to you. He says, granted, gifted. This is a gift. You don't deserve it. It's been gifted to you to believe upon him, but also gifted to you as a gift to suffer for him. Both of these come from God's sovereign hand in his own timing. And it's a gift to believe in him, and it's also a gift to suffer for him. But still doesn't answer our question. Well, how do I prepare? How How do I do this? Before he says those verses there, speaking of opponents, in verse 27, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We shouldn't live in the sense, okay, where's persecution going to come? Where's the opposition going to come? Is it coming left, right? Am I, I'm getting ready now. We, we shouldn't be in fear. But how do we proactively coat our minds and hearts? It's by living and conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. In other words, the phrase he used there, conduct yourselves, live like citizens. He's speaking there to, to Philippi, who, which is a Roman colony with having Roman citizenship, which is a prized thing in that day. He's saying there, don't live as a, as a Roman citizen, which is a good right. But he says, conduct yourselves, live as a citizen worthy of the gospel. That we must live worthily of the gospel. That if the gospel is true, that Christ came to save sinners and that you have been gripped and redeemed by that truth, that he washed you white as snow, he gave you his righteousness and you are seated with him in heavenly places. If that is true, live worthily of the gospel and how you live and how you speak and how you relate to one another and how you relate to the world, how you live in the workplace, how you treat your neighbors, how you speak to your neighbors, how you live everywhere you go, wherever you live, live worthy of that truth truth that you've been granted and bestowed upon deep, deep treasures of grace. And so live worthy of that truth, live worthy of the gospel so that when your opponents come, don't be alarmed. When it comes, when God gives you persecution, when it comes, you walk faithfully in that. So don't try to look for opposition. Don't try to look for persecution, but live worthily and faithfully of the gospel. and It's going to come. It's going to come. That's why family members can, can hate you and reject you as well because you don't affirm them of what they want, what they believe. It's why neighbors can think wrongly of you. It's why people can speak against you and make claims against you. But that's why we can say even Matthew five eleven, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Because of me, he says. So when you signed up, when you came to Christ, we know we came and we signed up to be hated. But it's a blessed thing. It's a blessed truth. It's a blessed reality. After Paul was also persecuted in in Acts chapter 14 for proclaiming the gospel, and he preaches the gospel again, and what do they do to him? They beat him. Until he's unconscious. His, his disciples looked around Paul and they thought he was dead. What did Paul do in Acts chapter 14? He got back up and went back and preached the gospel some more. And he encourages his disciples through this, which is so funny. Like, I think you need some encouragement right now. But he encourages his disciples. And he says in 14 verse 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. If our hope is there, live worthily of the gospel. And when it comes, it will come. But it's through many tribulations we enter. We're in good company. We're a kingdom citizen. It's not personal, and it's not pointless. It's for his glory, and so let him do what he has sought to do by his own sovereign timing. Let's pray. Father God, we need this truth for boldness. We need to stand in truth and be guided by truth. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk worthily in that matter. We need you, Lord Jesus. And I pray that this would be truths that rest upon our heart in Christ's name. Amen.